We are 10 days from Into the Inklands, but we got one more meta report left in us for Rise of the Floodborne. I like this type of stuff because I was able to get all of the data from PPG Houston, so every single registered deck, so we can actually take a look at that tournament in layers and kind of go through all of the wonderful things that the data gives and presents to us. So let's get right into this one. Final meta report of Rise of the Floodborne. Let's go. So the PPG Houston registered decks here. We can see that there were just under 50 Ruby Amethyst decks. There were 16 Amber Steel decks, 12 Sapphire Steel, 9 Emerald Steel, 7 Amber Ruby, 3 Amber Emerald, 3 Amber Sapphire, 2 Amber Amethyst, 2 Amethyst Emerald, 2 Amethyst Steel, two ruby sapphire and one emerald sapphire so with that you had 12 different ink combinations represented in the tournament trying to all go for the prize of top 16 the crazy and most interesting fact here is that, is that of these 12 ink combinations only four of them were even successful in making that top 16 so there were 105 decks registered and of course, we went all the way down to 16. The top 16 decks here were 10 Bounce Controls, 1 Amethyst Ruby Aggro Bounce, 2 Steel Songs, 1 Sapphire Steel, and 2 Emerald Steel. Uh, the graphic was a little messed up, so don't mind it too much. But I did want to give a shout out to PPG for hosting trading card game Houston. Uh, they did a wonderful job. Everything I was heard from the event was great. It was a well run. And it ran to a completion, which was wonderful. And of course, shout out to our friends, the Illumiteers, who were on the casting call of it. Pretty confident all those videos will be available on YouTube in due time. So when we break from 105 decks to 15, it's really interesting when you're able to like truly see uh, this was the data. This is what we started with. Obviously, you know, there were 46 Ruby Amethyst decks. 11 of them made top 16, which is pretty interesting. I understand that. But the curious thing here is the amount of decks that were unsuccessful and also the concept of just coming off another big major event. I mean, honestly, the biggest uh, event in North America so far, 128 players a few weeks ago, the winning deck was Amethyst Steel. And this event, only two people brought Amethyst Steel, which is kind of crazy. Normally, um, in competitive TCGs, there's a big turnover rate for successful decks from uh from the past especially ones that look like they were able to dominate a ruby amethyst uh metagame so it's one thing for the deck to continue to be successful but it's another thing for the deck to show up win the largest tournament and then nobody even play it kind of crazy to me in all honesty but let's look over some more interesting data here just to kind of go through the full scope of this tournament ppg meta breakdown Top 16 based on registration. Very often, I'm always hearing the complaint that of like, oh, well, of course, the top cuts are based off of the amount of Ruby Amethyst decks that were played, and that's why there's so many. But I also have always told people that your best chance to making top eight, if you're a competent player, is to play Ruby Amethyst. What I find remarkable here is even in the lower numbers that we see on the screen here, Ruby Amethyst still had the best ratio for players playing the deck to make top cut. 
it's kind of insane in all honesty. But there was a twenty, almost almost a twenty four percent chance that if you played uh, Ruby Amethyst deck, you were going to make top cut. And then Emerald Steel was the next one. There was only nine copies of Emerald Steel, but two players playing Emerald Steel were able to make top sixteen. But the conversion rate for that was only twenty two percent. So it's kind of wild to say that, like, yeah, these other decks were there. They showed up in smaller numbers, but they still had a less conversion rate than just playing Ruby Amethyst would have. I think that data is remarkable. It's also notable here to see that all of the decks that did, you know, Amber Ruby, Amber Emerald, Amethyst Sapphire, Amber Amethyst, Amethyst Emerald, Amethyst Steel, Ruby Sapphire, and Emerald Sapphire all uh, just fell short. Like, none of them were able to convert a single deck into top eight. There was actually uh, seven Amber Ruby decks and only nine Emerald Steel decks, but two players playing Emerald Steel made it to top 16 and zero playing Amber Ruby did. So what I just find really interesting about that data, like in all honesty as a whole, is like it's being said that Ruby Amethyst has these hard matchups that like these fixated, locked on matchups where you're able to conquer them. If half the tournament played Ruby Amethyst and it still had the most top 16s, and the decks that were designed to compete and beat it were incapable of even making top eight or top 16, I should say, then I think you can start really understanding what the metagame was. And the metagame was just a Ruby Amethyst metagame. But let's break into some of the decks from the event because I do think it's cool and I think it's notable that these players should be recognized for their success. Bobby Brake won the event, and in all honesty, once this is on YouTube, uh, the finals match between Bobby and Aaron was an incredibly well-played match. It was honestly greatly appreciated as a player to see their antics and their play styles and how cleanly they were with their inkwells and really just doing everything that you can possibly imagine be helpful when watching a game from afar. Uh, huge shout-out to Bobby for the win. I do think this deck is a true control aspect of this, you know, of this iteration here. Um, really being all in on removal with Tremains, Maleficence, Dragonfires, four Teeth and Ambition, four Be Prepared, having the Crab to utilize the one drops and your Mini Mouses for trades. Uh, the one Elsa, the key note taker here is only one Maui, which in a world where it's a bunch of mirror matches, one Maui makes a ton of sense. If we're betting on playing in an eight round tournament and four or five of my matches are going to be against the mirror, Maui is not wonderful in the mirror. Um, if you're not playing Peter Pan shadow. So if you didn't want to commit to pan shadow, then playing Maui as a one of just saying, you know what? It, it's good when I need it to be good. And I draw enough cards to find it in the matchup that I probably want it in. Uh, totally makes sense to me. Totally get it. Everything else is pretty standard, pretty stock, mega level control of Ruby Amethyst. But shout out to Bobby for bringing home the win. And honestly, shout out to Aaron for playing incredibly well. Also, I think that finals could have went either way. In the end, uh, it ends on a emotional draw, I should say. So when it goes live, definitely worth checking out on PPG's YouTube channel. Stunning Rob was the top four Emerald Steel player. 
The biggest notable fact here is that this deck does not play Prince John. And here's what I really want to say about this. And this is really nothing against Emerald Steel, nothing against this list, nothing against Rob and his success. Uh, but when it does go live, the top 16 match between Aaron and his opponent with, on Emerald Steel, I mean, this deck, it's very similar to the other list. This deck looked awful. I mean, I, I really think this version of this deck without Prince John is trying to capitalize on bad opponents. And I, and I mean that like as respectfully as possible, is that people don't understand how to play against you. They think they need to like rush in and just get all the cards on the table and then like just like be on the draw the whole time. Whereas in the top 16 matchup, all Aaron did was play cards that read draw a card and then did absolutely nothing other than that until turn seven, played be prepared, and the game was flat over. I mean, in all honesty, his opponent should have just conceded after be prepared because there was no way he was going to come back in the matchup because he spent five or six turns building up a board state, getting no lore, and was unsuccessful in removing the problem, which was be prepared. And he's just lost both games that way. So while this deck is interesting, when you don't have Prince John to refill your own hand, you're even more susceptible to be prepared. So if your opponent knows that and they plan for it, then this deck just doesn't do anything. So just take that with a grain of salt. It's a great idea, great concept. Worked out well to get him in that position. But the one match I watched this deck be played in top 16, it was very clear to me that Ruby Amethyst was actually the favorite in the matchup, which is kind of mind-blowing when this deck is supposed to be heavily favored into it. All it really takes is a change of plan and a change of script, and all of that falls apart. That's all I'm saying. Let's get to the next deck. Sapphire Steel found its way into a top aid played by Chris Croy. This is the list here on screen. Uh, in all honesty, when I look at this list, it doesn't look anything different. Uh, it, it was really made out to be on stream that this was like a brand new iteration of Blue Steel. But when I started looking at the list, I kind of was like, I don't feel that way at all. It's pretty stock. The one key factor difference is that it has Winnie the Pooh over uh, Detective Mickey or like a one jump ahead that I've seen. So if that makes it different, I guess, but I don't think so. I think this is pretty much your run of the mill stock Blue Steel deck that has been, you know, having success here and now over the course of the last six weeks or so, maybe going down a little bit further to closer to eight weeks. But all in all, shout out to Chris uh, on his play, on the top eight finish. Yeah, Blue Steel is pretty interesting um, in the metagame right now. I think, again, this was like designed to beat Ruby Amethyst, but every kind of chance there really is to prove that, most of the time, it is falling short due to inconsistency and just being incapable of finishing out games uh, or being able to stall Ruby Amethyst before they can just kind of combo out with go and win and beat you that way. Your single target removal is not good enough. You're really required to either have double grab your sword or grab your sword plus tank to truly turn over some of those matchups. So while I think this deck is powerful and strong, um, I still think it falls short to what Ruby Amethyst was proving in the even in the event here. We had the finals be two Ruby Amethyst players. A lot to be taken away here. Blue Steel, however, I said it this week on Twitter. Um, 
personally, I think if this deck found a way to be more consistent, it would be the most negative play experience deck in the game, and people would hate it. So where it is right now, being a kind of like an inconsistent player in the metagame was probably where it had to be, because had this deck been more consistent, had this deck been easier to play for the average player, I think that people would have been screaming even harder for the metagame to be changed, because this deck is just boring, it's grindy, it's not fun to play against, in all honesty, as someone that's played the deck quite a bit, I don't even find it fun to play. So like, a lot of things that are wrong with this deck uh, and the inconsistency is what led it to be safe for the metagame. I do worry that if there's a way to make this deck even more consistent moving forward, uh, we might even have more frustrating play lines and more frustrating players going to matchups where they feel like what their deck is doing doesn't even matter because of all the different ways for the this deck to interact, having Tinkerbell grab your swords to clear up boards, having Cogsworth to prevent damage and disincentivize challenging, having a whole new world to manipulate hands, it kind of does hit the game on three different types of fronts, which can definitely be frustrating when the deck works as intended, and it being inconsistent is probably, again, the key factor of why more players don't actually despise this deck, in my humble opinion. Let's get to the last deck. The last and final was a top 16 finish by Amber Steel. Uh, this is not a flute deck, which is notable. This is just a song deck. It's mostly an aggro Rockstar deck utilizing, you know, the draw power from Rockstar, from Beast, uh, and Rapunzel, of course, finding all the songs. I do find it interesting that this was uh, a deck that was successful to get to a top 16 without flutes in a meta that has so many ruby amethyst decks in the field uh i definitely think this deck in my opinion is worse into ruby amethyst than flutes so to not have flutes to not have lantern um very interesting and honestly probably played very well by brandon here so huge shout out to top 16 and getting there so the question is do you want more and what i mean by that is we did a recap video of the meta every single week for Rise of the Floodborne, and when there wasn't enough events, that's when I took the time to compile everything and tell you those numbers instead. If you like that type of content, then you've got to make sure you smash the like button for me here. If you're brand new to the channel, you're looking forward to metagame breakdowns for Into the Inkling, there's no better place for it than right here. Smash it. Why do I do meta reports and not tournament reports? I think it's important as a player in the grand scheme of it all to see what everyone is doing. I think it's important to capture that and find the brass and differences across global platforms. I think seeing a little tournament is great. It's fun to, to shout out the players and give them, you know, their just desserts. And I think they absolutely deserve that. But for here, the meta report is about taking as much information as possible and presenting it in a digestible way for everyone to understand and utilize. And that's exactly why we do the meta reports this way. I hope you've enjoyed them through the rise of the Floodborne. I know there was a lot of Ruby Amethyst. I'm sorry, but let's talk about for one second, how much Ruby Amethyst there actually was. That's right. Take a big, big breath here. The number in top eights of Ruby Amethyst is an astounding 234. Now, before I go any further, 
just a few weeks ago when I did the 11 best decks in the metagame, there was only 180 at the time. That's 54 more of these in a span of just a few weeks. Insane. Uh, the turnover rate in the last few tournaments, almost all of them have been five or more Ruby Amethyst decks in the majority of uh, your more exclusive events. And that's why the number just kept going up. But like, my God, let's talk about the rest of it real quick, though. <laughs> so, yes, we had 234 Ruby Amethyst decks. And the next closest in combination in top eight success was Amber Steel with 64. So we go from 234 all the way down to 64. And then the crazier jump here is that Amber Steel has nearly 30 more top eights than Sapphire Steel with 36. Now, the cool thing about this is that there was a change in the list from the last uh, meta report where Emerald Steel had some success in the last couple weeks of the game. It jumped from 6th on the list all the way to 4th, coming in with 25 top 8s. Amethyst Steel only picked up another 2 top 8s to go to 23. Amber Ruby did absolutely nothing but did pick up 1 top 8 in the recent weeks to finish at 22. Amber Amethyst actually had quite a big jump with a few successes far and wide throughout events, going to 17. Sapphire Ruby stuck with 14. I believe it went up 1. Amber Emerald, 9. Don't think it got any. Amethyst Emerald, 5. Don't think it got any. Emerald Ruby at 3. Did not get any. So no changes there. The biggest, craziest change of all of it is the fact that there were 54 more top 8s by Ruby Amethyst, which is nearly just as much as the total of the 64 Amber, Amber Steel decks uh, that top eight the entire season. It's honestly crazy. It's so crazy that, like, I want to talk about, like, the overall conversion rate here, guys, is that 52% of top eights um, in the Rise of the Floodborne metagame were made up of Ruby Amethyst in combinations. I know they weren't all control. I know they weren't all bounce. I know they weren't all aggro, right? But we can probably agree that 40 to 45 cards of those decks were basically the exact same 40 to 45 cards in all of them. And the last 15 cards were kind of just like the sprinkle on top of the flavor that you would like to have in a given tournament. So it's still 52% of the metagame consumed by the idea of what Ruby Amethyst presents, which is honestly remarkably insane. Uh, way worse than Chapter 1. Not even close. The numbers were so much closer in Chapter 1. It was way closer to like a 30-30-20 type scenario with at least three decks all being in contention with saying, hey, we're the best deck in the game. I don't care what anyone wants to tell you. All of the statistics prove over and over and over again that Ruby Amethyst was the best deck in Rise of the Floodborne. And in all honesty, it's just not close. I mean, 52% of 452 decks. That's how many decks there were in top in the top eights. 452 reported decks that I could find over the course of the season. And in that, 52% of them were Ruby Amethyst. I don't miss it. I'm not going to. But it is not to say that, that the, it could get worse. It, it really is. I, it's not to say that that's pop potential. The next metagame could be potentially worse than this. Or it could be a lot less fun. As powerful as Ruby Amethyst is, I actually thought the deck was still 
fun. I thought the deck was still okay to play against. Was its consistency frustrating? Yes, of course it was. Uh, was the overall success of the deck frustrating? Yes, of course it was. Do I think it needs a ban? Yes, I did. I understand that it's short periods of time, three months intervals, but what I really felt about this deck and what the majority, literally more than half the players in the game felt about this deck was the concept of there wasn't really a better choice than it. 52% of top eights were consumed by this, over half of them. When you go into a metagame that way and you go and you approach a tournament and you don't even have the ability to say, I think I can better myself in the event by playing this deck instead of Ruby Amethyst is really difficult. But then when you go and say, I think I'm better in the tournament by playing a deck that's not Amethyst, it's an even further step. And I know the wheel shows that Steel was the next four most successful decks. Totally get it, right? Totally get it. Steel had its options, but I also think Steel was preying on every single aggro deck that was designed to attempt to consistently beat Ruby Amethyst. And that's why you have those levels of success from the Steel decks in the metagame. But none of them can consistently say that they beat Ruby Amethyst on average. There's just no proof of it. There's literally no proof that the deck has the true success rate when you look at the grand scheme numbers of all of it. So definitely one of those moments where it was very, very outrageous, in all honesty. I think that there could have definitely been a ban within the grand scheme of it to try and mix things up. However, I understand trickle-down effects. If you ban something from Amethyst, you probably need to ban something from Steel, because if you look at that list, if we go back, we look at it one more time, you can see that the Steel is all over the place as well. So without Amethyst being as strong as it was, then maybe Steel just runs rampant. But at least, you know, we can say that there's four or five different flavors of Steel, which I think is very interesting. Uh, all in all, there's a gigantic trickle-down effect. And I respect all of those things. I, I have a design background. I understand the rules and limitations of if you do X, then why happens? Trust me, I'm not just talking out my ass here. Uh, so it is just a matter of there is a trickle-down effect. But I think if you want it to really test the waters, then some of these cards being removed would have absolutely opened up a brand new game or a brand new metagame, as I would say. So that's kind of where I would have loved to see. I would have loved to see events try it. I would have even loved to see local tournaments maybe talk to their community and say, hey, if we decided to ban X, Y, and Z, would you guys be okay and comfortable with that? I would have loved to see that. You know, I don't have a local store that really is that interested in hosting the game at a competitive level, so it really wasn't worthwhile for me. But it's definitely worthwhile for, you know, if you go to stores and you get into this part in the metagame, especially three months later. The metagame was three months long for this. So at two months, if it was so very clear that everyone just keeps playing the same stuff and it's kind of dragging along, maybe a little bit boring, yada, yada, talk to your local game stores and say, hey, let's talk to the community. Let's see if they'd be interested in trying something new. Uh, shout out to the Ink Spill format. I thought that was cool that I had seen posted on Twitter. You know, there's the Street Rat Tournament, which I is what I call Porcana because I don't like Porcana at all. I think it's a stupid name. Sorry for anyone that likes it, but I really like Street Rat instead. I think it's a way cooler idea way cooler name and it doesn't make it sound miserable and awful and it doesn't have to offend anybody either that's just me uh so yeah I, I would go to your local stores and say hey we're two months in 
there's nothing really going on. We're not we're playing for low stakes here. You know, we're playing for thirty or forty dollars in store credit. Let's just try something different. That's that's my pitch to anyone that is you know a like a very regular league player. I would suggest those things if you get to a stalemate game like this, kind of ever again moving forward. So the big change, of course, is can it change? Can into the Inklands change anything? I think the past 10 days or so of reveals of Into the Inklands, which has ironically been like 90 cards, which is crazy to say that we've gotten half of the set in the last 10 days, and we're very much closing in on the final 20 or so cards, that it definitely has made an impact. Um, What I can say for sure, and this is my humble opinion and my first kind of hot take, there are a lot of very interesting cards. There are also a lot of very clear powerful cards now whether or not that interesting converts to consistency and power that's going to be the the clear debate power will always lead to power and likely you know lead to some form of consistency especially in a world where you're inkable there was a lot of really good inkable powerful cards released in ink to the inklands and then there was a lot of interesting cards locations at the end of the day are very interesting they're a brand new mechanic they can potentially alter game states and scripts that because of that whatever you want to say about them you cannot just immediately say they're bad you cannot just immediately say oh can i afford to take a turn off oh my opponent just answered it so whatever the layers of what the mechanic does changes everything we know about the game whether or not it is going to be worth it is just unfair to say until they're in our hands until you can play them until you can really break in and actually give them a fair shot because there's just too many ramifications the changes uh when a new mechanic like this exists and the last four or five locations that were revealed all have huge Huge, insane gramifications on game states. So because of that, do I think they're worth it? Absolutely. Have I been hopeful the entire season of reveals? Since the moment they revealed the Forbidden Mountain location, I was hopeful that locations would be good. So I'm very interested. It's definitely somewhere where I think it's worth starting. I'm a big advocate of exploring brand new things and brand new mechanics Uh, when they come out because if you don't explore then you can't learn and you don't even understand what they're trying to do so if any of those things interest you i can guarantee you that you will not find a better channel than right here over the next few weeks we are going mega deep into content on into the inklands we're going to give you cores we're going to give you decks we're going to give you breakdowns of the locations themselves and mechanics so many things, cards you want to look out for, cards that we think are bad and you shouldn't even waste your time on. Yes, we're going to do all of those things moving forward in the next few weeks leading up to the first events and first reports of the metagame. I'm so very excited to get into the Inklands with you. If you're just as excited, make sure you hit the like button. Comment below. Let me know what you are most excited for from Into the Inklands because honestly, there was some bangers released the last couple weeks and i cannot wait to start talking about them thank you guys so much if you haven't yet hit subscribe and we'll catch you in the next one